If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 9 to 14. In July and August, we are going to look at the Olivet Discourse. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how appropriate it is to sing praises to you, your Son, your Spirit. How appropriate it is to look at your inspired, inerrant word that we might know you, that we might know your plans, plans for our lives, plans for our world, plans for the future. Father, as we look at the Olivet Discourse, allow us to be wise. Allow us not to be caught up in details that divide sincere Christ followers, but to focus on the truths that are so clear that if we ignore them, we are in disobedience to you. We ask, Father, that you would guide my words, our hearts, that we would be changed by truth. If I say things that are incorrect, give us wisdom to ignore them, that we might be changed by what is true that comes from you for our betterment and your great glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Betty Ann and I have had the privilege of going to Mount Vesuvius, Pompeii, on several occasions. The first time we were there was actually in preparation for the second time. We were there to kind of explore it because the next time we had the privilege of taking a group from Highland to Rome for a time of looking at some archaeological wonders, and then we would take a short jaunt down to Naples, down to Mount Vesuvius to Pompeii. Now you may know about Pompeii as the site of the Western world's most infamous volcanic eruption, 79 AD. So we were there to view the ruins of Pompeii. Now we divided, we don't often do this when I lead tours, but we divided into a small group, we'll call them jackrabbits, and a larger group, slower, I would say. And I took the jackrabbits, they were all 20s, 30s, and me. The idea was that Pompeii is 163 acres. We had a limited amount of time, and we wanted to see as much of Pompeii as we could. And so I took my jackrabbits, and we headed towards an amphitheater. And the whole way heading towards the amphitheater, I said, you can't wait to get there. You're going to love this. It's the best view in all of Pompeii. We'll get to the top. We'll take some pictures. It's magnificent. You can imagine... My disappointment when we entered the amphitheater, we were the only ones there, and three quarters of the way up the amphitheater, they had roped off the top section. Now, I always obey ropes. 
I, I do. I always obey ropes. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I get really disgusted when people don't. That's the truth. Because I figure that it's under repair, that it's damaged, that in some way we can hurt the archeological site. But I knew that this was structurally sound. I knew that it was not under repair. And I knew that the only reason they corridored off the last section was that they would give private tours for people who had paid a little bit more money to get the best view. And there was nobody there. What would you have done? <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. And so I led my group the first time ever in my life across the line to the top. And we had this magnificent view, beautiful pictures. And while we were up there, another group entered. And with them was an official from Pompeii. And they rebuked me and we quickly crossed the line. And then I looked very closely and the other group was the Highland group. <laughs> a man of the cloth, normally with a shiny halo. And I'm on the wrong side being rebuked. And so we quickly apologized and hightailed it out of there. And the pictures, by the way, were great. Well, that's the end of my therapy session. But we were there to see the ruins of Pompeii. And if you're familiar with Pompeii outside of Hollywood, you know that the ruins are intact. You see, Pompeii was really never covered with lava. 20,000 people died almost instantly and none of it was from lava. They died in one of three ways. Paraplastic missiles, large boulders came out of the cone and were hurled at the city going 430 miles per hour and people died. Out of the cone, pumice and ash went up in the air between 50 and 100,000 feet and literally buried the city in nine feet, two inches of ash. People were buried alive. And then there was a crack, a fissure in the ground and out of it came gases estimated at 1,830 degrees and people died instantly. 20,000 people died instantly. Now I use the word instantly carefully today. They died instantly, but they had warning. They had lots of warning. Mount Vesuvius was and still is an active volcano. They had had minor eruptions in AD 62 and 64. For the seven years prior to AD 79, they had had almost daily seismic activity in Pompeii. Two weeks prior to the eruption, a plume of smoke began to come out of the cone, warning them that eruption was coming. And yet the people did nothing. They were warned they did nothing. And 20,000 perished. We ignore the signs of a volcano to our detriment. We ignore the signs leading up to the return of Christ to our detriment. What we saw two weeks ago, what we'll see today Matthew calls in verse 
8 of chapter 24, the birth pangs, their signs, their signals, their clues that Jesus is coming back. Paul calls it the blessed hope in Titus 2, 13. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, it's the parousia, the Greek word, the coming of Christ. In Latin, it is the rapture. Jesus is coming. Are you prepared? Am I? Are we ready? He's coming. And there are signs that tell us that when we see these signs, and the more signs we see, the closer we are to the return of Christ. And so today we're going to look at a few of the signs. I want to pick up in Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of, money, of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the ethnation, the nations, and then the end will come. Now, as you and I read Matthew 24, it tells us that the closer we come to the blessed hope, the rapture, the parousia, the coming of Christ, the more the world will hate us as Christ's followers. We have been warned We've been warned that the world will not like us, will not tolerate us, that the morals of Christ are anathema to the world. The morals of Christ do not allow us to pick our pronouns. The morals of Christ do not allow us to decide what intimacy is right and what is wrong only between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. The ethics of Christ are sky-high perfection. And the gospel of Christ is salvation by faith through Jesus Christ alone, not in ourselves, not in any other faith system, only in Christ alone. And the closer we get to the return of Christ, we've been warned. The world will not like us, will not tolerate us, will not tolerate the morals, the ethics, the uniqueness, the soulness of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And sometimes the church, especially in the West, acts so surprised that the world doesn't like us. What we've had for 250 years in the United States is fairly unique to the world. We live in a country in which Christianity, at least in name, but certainly in practice early on, dominated our society. But we've been warned that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the less that that will be true. And so what we have in Matthew is he goes back between the near the time of Matthew is illustration for what will happen in the far, the time of Jesus' return 
ushering in Revelation 6 to 18, the 21 judgments that God will pour out on the world, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And the difficulty in the time of Matthew is what we should expect. What did Matthew endure? Well, during that near time, they endured narrow, Domitian, Trajan, Valerian, Maximus the Thracian, Diocletian, Galerius. If you've been in the Middle East, if you've been in Europe, you've seen the edifices attributed to these emperors. But they didn't build a single one of them. They were built on the backs of slaves, often Jews, sometimes Muslims, often Christians, who not only were enslaved, but often put to death. That's the case going into the empire and beyond that, in the Greek period and beyond that, even into the 8th century, the 7th century, where you, you have the creation of Islam. They, these individuals were enslaved to build many of these edifices because Christianity was not tolerated. Other faiths were not tolerated. Only the false Roman pantheon was tolerated. It's really not until the 4th century. It's not until Constantine and 312 and 311 that he releases the Edict of Milan in which Christianity is legalized, in which for the first time in the Roman Empire you can believe in Christ and you can share Christ with others. For the first 300 years of Christianity, it was against the law to know Christ. It was certainly against the law to proselytize about Christ, that's the near to Matthew. And he says that's what it's gonna be like in the far, the time leading up to Christ and in the tribulation. And quite frankly, it's beginning to be so now in our lives as well. Things will become difficult leading up to the return of Christ and then in the tribulation. In the tribulation, Satan will take on a human form. We call him the antichrist or the beast. We call him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. Daniel calls him the little horn in Daniel 7. All the same individual. We have the unholy trinity. Satan, then this demonized antichrist, and then the false prophet. And during those seven years of tribulation, Revelation 6 to 18, the beast will not only rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount, the 37 acres in Jerusalem, he will demand that we worship him, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4, and he will demand that we take a mark, the mark of the beast, Revelation 13, 15 to 18, and those who do not take the mark of the beast, they will be martyred for the faith. They will be martyred for their testimony to Jesus Christ. It's going to get bad. It's going to get worse. Matthew lived in the near and it was difficult. He talks about the far and it's going to be far, far worse. Now you know that I'm pre-tribulational. So I believe that Christ removes the church at the beginning of the seven years. And so you might ask, then who is left? If the church is gone, how does anyone come to Christ? 
Revelation 11 answers the question, does it not? It tells us that during the seven years, the Lord will send two witnesses. And the witnesses will go the globe over to proclaim the gospel. And I believe the witnesses to be none other than Moses and Elijah. How do I come to that realization? Well, think in Scripture. Who is the only person in all of Scripture that when he died, God himself collected the body? Moses, Deuteronomy 34, because that body is needed. Moses is coming back. And Elijah didn't die, 2 Kings 2. And these two witnesses will come back and they will perform miracles that, that correspond to the miracles that Moses and Elijah performed in the Old Testament. And some will come to Christ. Revelation 7 and 14 tells us 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from 12 tribes will come to Christ. Paul calls that in Romans 9 to 11, the regrafting of the Jews into the family of God. They will believe in Christ and they will be martyred for their faith. And things will become so bad that we will read the following in Revelation 6 verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood, our martyrdom, really, on those who dwell on the earth. So in the near, the time of Matthew, there was great persecution, and it was an illustration of what will happen in the far, the time leading up to Christ, and then the removal of the church, and then the seven years of tribulation. All of this is what Matthew calls in verse 8, the birth pangs. And verses 9 to 11, he calls it the tribulations, including the martyrdoms. And how many martyrdoms will there be? I don't know. And when will it occur? I don't know. Mark 13, 32 says that we can never set dates, but we are to be ready for the imminent, the any moment return of Christ. And we know that the closer we get to the end, the more persecution will arise against the church. I think of Dr. David Barrett. Time Magazine in 1982 called Dr. Barrett the best historian among missiologists in the world. And he wrote a book with Todd Johnson, who's a professor out of Gordon-Conwell, or was. And together that book is the World Christian Encyclopedia. And it's a heavily documented book. And in this book, they give us historical evidence that in the 20th century, the last century, 45 million Christians were martyred for their faith. 45 million. Most of them in communist and Islamic parts of the world. That is more martyrs in the 20th century than the first 19 centuries combined. Things we're getting worse. Now we have a slight reprieve in the 21st century. We don't really have a lot of data at this point, but we know that somewhere between 10 and 15,000 martyrs every year occurs. Probably a great deal more than that, but that's what we know to be true. What are the most difficult, most dangerous countries in the world? If you read lists, they're all a little bit different. So mine's rather long. But it's North Korea and Afghanistan, 
Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, that's the northern part, Yemen, Iran, Iraq, India, China, Indonesia, Syria, Nigeria, Chad, and Saudi Arabia. You probably would add a country to it yourself. And in these parts of the world, Northeast Africa and Asia and the Middle East, we have the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christ follower. And what's our job? What's our responsibility? It's not to be ignorant of what is going on in other parts of the world. It is to be prayerful. Prayerful for our sisters and brothers in Christ who are in very dangerous places, some of whom will shed their blood, lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. It's to care about missionaries and to send missionaries to the remotest parts of the world, to pray for our missionaries, to be financially and prayerfully and emotionally involved in their lives. And it's to guard our lives because the closer we get to the return of Christ is imminent any moment return, we know that we live in a world that will not tolerate the morality and the ethics and the unique nature of the gospel. We've been warned that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more difficult the land we live in will be. Let me read verses 10 and 11 again. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It tells us that they will be insiders who will leave the church because the heat of morality and the heat of ethics and what is politically correct will cause some to say popularity is more important than Christ. Now we have just studied 1 John. That's what we just went through prior to the Olivet Discourse. And I think we learned beyond a shadow of a doubt that once saved, always saved. So we're talking about individuals who are in the pews who do not know Christ. And they will leave us. Remember what John said in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. But that they went out, it is proof that they are not of us. The picture is of Judas, right? Judas was one of the 12. He's a disciple. He's an insider, actually. Is he not? Judas is an insider who's actually the treasurer of the 12. And what does John 6, 70 say? It says he's a devil. He was an insider who was really an outsider who heard the gospel but did not personally embrace Christ and he went out. And the text tells us that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more likely we will have insiders who are not really of us go outside us and they will actually be the greatest critics of the church they're not part of us but they've been charlatans among us and what will be the evidence that you and I know Christ it's the perseverance of our faith verses 12 
and 13 says this, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the more lawless the world will become, the more we will ignore the morality, the ethics, the uniqueness of the gospel, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those who do not endure, it says that the love will grow cold. Cold. Now, I live in Wausau. I know a little thing about cold. January, the average high is 24. The average low is 5. I think that's cold. But it's downright balmy compared to Oimeakin. Oimeakin is in Russia. It is the coldest place that is regularly inhabited by 500 hapless villagers. And it's really cold. In the winter, the average day gets down to minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. That's cold. Let me put this in perspective. If you have a glass of water and you raise it to your lips, it will probably freeze to your lips. Don't do that. If you have a ballpoint pen in your pocket, it will freeze solid and the ink will not write. If you have a car and you turn it off for 15 or 20 minutes and it's outside, it's exposed. It probably will not start up again. I think our teachers, our schools are, are wise. They know when it's too cold to go outside for recess. They know when it's too cold to go to school. Very wise. Well, my kin, they're not so wise. They don't cancel school until it hits minus 64 degrees Fahrenheit. That's nuts. It's crazy. That's cold. And the Bible says that's what happens to those who are among us who have not truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Their hearts will grow cold. They're not those of Revelation 7 and 14. The Jews who will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. They're not those who have listened to the two witnesses and allowed their hearts to grow warm to the things of God. They're not of us, even though they're among us. They go out from us that we might know that they are not a part of us. Their hearts grow cold. And verses 10 to 12 reads as follows. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is textile statement of the perseverance of the saints. How do we know that we belong to Christ? We persevere in our faith. How do we know that we belong to the Lord? There's fruit in our lives. There's transformation. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. 
There is fruit. Yes, sometimes we take one step forward and two steps back. Sometimes we're like the church at Corinth and there's rebellion in our life and the Lord comes and chastises and punishes us and brings us back into a relationship. But if we belong to the Lord, we will never slip away. We will never slide away. We will never lose our faith. God holds on to us and he will persevere in and through us. And the one who perseveres to the end, the one who belongs to the Lord, will be saved. As I think about perseverance, I think about a fight that took place in November. It was the 25th, 1980. The fight was between Roberto Stonehands Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard. It was at the Superdome today called the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. It was actually the second fight between these two. The first fight, Roberto Stonehands Duran, the Panamanian, he had won. They had gone toe-to-toe, and Duran was much stronger. In fact, he was just a great fighter. He had, his last 41 bouts, he had won. His record was 72-1 and altogether. He was a great fighter. But this time, Sugar Ray had a different plan. It was kind of the Muhammad Ali plan, you know? Sting like a bee, float like a butterfly, come in, out, in, out. He wasn't gonna go hand to hand with the stronger Roberto Duran. And so it frustrated the Panamanian. For eight rounds, Roberto Duran couldn't land anything solid. Sugar Ray was in, out, in, out, in, out. And although on the scorecards only one or two points separated them on all three judges' cards, Roberto Duran was frustrated. Come on, fight like a man! And, and Sugar Ray wouldn't. And so finally, Roberto Duran turned to the referee and he said, no mas, no more. He wasn't hurt. He wasn't cut. He was frustrated and he said, no mas, no more, and he quit. It's gone down in history as a no mas bout. Almost overnight, all of his endorsements, both in the United States and Panama, they evaporated. Nobody wanted to support a quitter. No mas. And the text tells us that there are going to be no mas church attenders. That when the heat rises, when morality is so different by the world than in the book, when ethics is so different in the world than in the book, when salvation is clearly only through Christ, and yet the world says otherwise, and the heat rises, and the persecution begins to settle in the church, the text tells us that there will be charlatans, and they're going to cry out, no Moss, no more. But not everyone. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the ethnations, the nations, ethnesis, and then the end will come. That word nation really doesn't refer to the 249 countries, 194 that are independent. 
It actually refers to people groups. Nobody knows how many there are. They're divided by language and geography and caste and culture. Some say 11,000. The Joshua Project, I think, says about 24,500. But we're told in Revelation 5, 9, that the Lord has claimed a remnant for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There will be people from every ethnation, every ethnic group, every language, every people group, every geography that claim Christ. And that gives us hope in evangelism. It gives us hope in world missions. It calls us to action because there will be results. Jesus has claimed for himself a remnant. That's why missions are a big deal in our church. Our budget is about $400,000 every year towards missions. In addition to that, over the next two and a half years, we have pledged another $600,000 to missions beyond our $400,000 each year. We have the participation of the tenant people with pastors Luca and Joseph and the gospel going out to these individuals. I think of the Palaka people, the Palaka people in Africa and the Ivory Coast. You have Vern and Denny Johnson and Josh and Christy Wolgama. Denny has translated the New Testament into a language. She actually had to write the language down. Nobody had a written language for the Palaka people. Now she's teaching people how to read. She's finished the New Testament. With the final revision, they're going to publish 4,000 New Testaments. First time again in amongst the Palaka people. And Highland's going to pay for those 4,000 Testaments. We have a part in that. I think about the Megabach people in Papua New Guinea with Steve and Debbie McAvoy. And he has translated the New Testament into a language and, and we're part of his support team. And in a few moments, uh, Paul and Liz Bowman from Madrid are going to come up and share what God is doing through them, not only in Spain, but throughout Europe. And we have a part in this. This is our privilege and our joy. The closer we get to the return of Christ, we will never set dates. Mark 13, 32 forbids it. But we know that Christ's coming is imminent. And as we prepare for Christ's coming, it means that you and I need to guard our hearts, that we need to have a world vision, participate financially in going on short and permanent mission trips, we need to be supportive of missionaries. We need to pray that Satan will be bound and that hearts will be open to the gospel. And we need to guard our lives. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And he doesn't want to find hearts that have grown cold, but hearts that are hot, white hot, red hot for the gospel. Is that you? Is that me? Let's pray. Father God, uh, 
We pray that we may be found ready. That we would be wise, alert, on point. That we as a church would stand for the morality and the ethics and the gospel of your book, Scripture. That our hearts would not grow cold. That we would, as individuals, as families, as a church family, stand firm as we see some of the birth pangs telling us that the return of your son is imminent. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a thousand years from now, but we are to be ready. Allow us to be ready, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen.